Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to the Parenting Cipher, where each episode will give you the tools and resources to help your child thrive in school and in life. Please rate and review this podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback. And also hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any upcoming episodes. Hello, everyone. Today, the Cypher is blessed with Miss Kim from Amel Counseling, who specializes in grief, loss, and therapy for kids and teens of color. And I would love for her to introduce herself to everyone because she is such a treasure. Hey, y'all. I'm Kim wheeler Bien. I am a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm based in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I own a practice, as Jeannie said, Amel Counseling Consulting, based in Philadelphia. We are a group practice of three other clinicians with me and we only see children, teens, and adults. And my specialties are grief, loss, racial trauma, working with kids of color, and also transracial adoptees. So let me ask you this. She said you mentioned your social worker. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be a good one. So my son has a social worker and she's African-American. However, whenever I interact with her, I always feel like she has a bias class is biased. And at first it kind of threw me because I was like, well, you know, she's black. So maybe I'm tripping, right? So my son mentioned we moved. She sends me an email. Well, your son said you moved. Did you make sure that you changed your address? Why would I not change my address? That doesn't make sense to me. I thought at first I was being sensitive. Next thing you know, she sent me another note asking me, well, Xavier said that, you know, y'all went out of town. I'm like, what's going on? Why are you keep asking me these things? And then she sent me something. At the end of the year, she wrote my son up for his proper support. And everything that she wrote up was about her. It was, I explained to Xavier that I take a lot of time to create the plans for us today. And he said, that's okay. When I try to engage Xavier in certain activities, he doesn't seem to be interested. And I took all of my time to create these lesson plans. And he really doesn't want to be interactive. There was a call with her where she was talking to him and she says to him, well, Xavier, we talked about it and we decided that, you you know, if you participated more, you would get better grades. So my son says, well, I get good grades. She says, oh, well, I mean, if you don't want to get good grades, then I guess. And I'm like, oh, so you trying to play the game with him? He said to her, well, listen, I get good grades. I see my report card. So then she writes down in the notes, she writes down that he's not compliant. So for everyone who doesn't know about the non-compliancy thing, it's a P for mine because it is something that's used in the medical world as basically saying that you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. And especially when it's given to a child that you are trying to get a, like a private placement, a placement somewhere else, you're trying to put them in a school. It's almost saying like this child hit somebody like that's how they look at non-compliant. And it's been an interesting interaction because I'm going to say she's black and I'm kind of like, what's going on? OK, so you decided that because I'm black and I have a private placement that you know who I am. And as a social worker, I'm trying to figure out like. First of all, how should I talk to her? Should I just say it? Like, can I just say, like, this is how I feel? Or am I tripping, Kim? I'm not going to bore you with the history of social work. 
But I'm going to say, like I said, my field can be racist. And I think that we also fall into this thing of, oh, if you're black, you can't be racist. Well, you can also be aligned with white supremacy. You can also have internalized white supremacy. Like you can also have this internalized white bias because you've kind of like taken this thing that white is right. So as the saying goes, all skin folk and kin folk. Right. And so it's very difficult to find social workers and therapists who look like you. Right. It's very difficult. Mm -hmm. And even within that, you have to weed them out the same way you weed out everybody else. Right. Not everyone is going to they're not going to ride for you and they're not going. (laughs) It's the best (laughs) way to say it. We're not going to ride for you. And there are people that they could be burnt out. They could be, okay, well, this is what I do all the time. And this is what families are. And it's a lot easier to just pigeonhole people and to go along with it. Not every person who works with kids <laughs> needs to be working with kids. I don't know her. I'm sure she's a very lovely person. I don't know. I supervise therapists, right? And frustration comes out when kids aren't necessarily doing what it is that they want to do. But therapy is an art. And working with kids is an art to do that. To understand that the process is not about you as a provider. It's about what that kid needs in that moment. And when you're providing social work services through an IEP, those things have to be measurable. And we're looking at, we need to create SMART goals and they need to be measurable. And there's an art to writing a SMART goal, but also kind of meeting a kid where they are. I'm very good at it. <laughs> Some people may not be, right? And that if a kid doesn't necessarily do the thing that you want them to do, it could be that they declined instead of refused or not compliant because compliance like you said, implies that they just are willfully not doing something. But the other thing that we're looking at when we're looking at when people say to someone is not compliant, that is really a way for a professional to say, but it's not my fault if they're not doing well. Ooh. Um, this, is, this is documentation. This is CYA. And so this is one of those things. But I would also like look at that and say, I don't really care if you spend a whole bunch of time planning something. You spend a lot of time planning something and that kid didn't want to do it then you got a whole bunch of other tricks in your bag that you do. I mean, I got a whole bunch of stuff that I'm like, hey, I might have a plan for something, but it goes somewhere else. But I'm also confident that a kid internally kind of knows what they need and that you as a therapist are there to kind of give them support and maybe give a little bit of guidance here and there, but trust the process and trust the therapeutic process and the relationship. It sounds like there was a lack of rapport building and a kid wanting to please an adult does not mean rapport. Compliant <laughs> does not mean, you know, that they have a strong therapeutic alliance or that they trust this person. I think that for me, I've worked with kids for 20 years and I feel that it's a gift and a blessing if a child trust me enough to open up to me. I don't take those relationships for granted. I know how difficult it is and how important and special that is. I also know that there's a potential for a lot of damage if there's a hierarchy and a power differential and that you have to be reverent and have to be respectful. And this is your opportunity to teach kids that adults can be safe and they can be empowering and they can help you to learn particular skills so that you can grow and you can thrive. What we ultimately need to approach our relationships with children is that they're worthy of dignity and respect and not the fact that you are worthy of dignity and respect. Therefore, a kid needs to be compliant to show you that. You have to humble yourself because kids are learning that you should already know it. Yeah, that part. So I would say in that respect to her, you can say in a very thing. You know what? I noticed on when you're writing the goals that there's a lot of I and I'm not really sure 
how you factor into what his goals are. Your goal should be something that should transfer to multiple settings. And it also should be that if you were not the one to actually be his provider, someone else should be able to step in. So your personal interactions with him, I don't necessarily think that that's like really privy to what the services are. I don't understand that. Right. Oh, that's good with because we just had a meeting with her and I was confused because so I addressed it. I addressed it. I felt like that was my opportunity. And I basically I was saying you're saying that he's regressing. I said, but it's a new goal. So what is your what exactly is your reference when you're saying regressing and it's a new goal? She never spoke up. Someone else spoke up and they were like based on the baseline. And then when she did speak up, she's like, well, you know, he's had two discipline reports and she pulls one up. Mm -hmm. And first of all, I'm saying I'm thinking, well, you said it's two. I haven't received either one. And then second of all, I find it to be really interesting that I'm questioning you and this is what you're going to pull up in a meeting as though you're going to make my son the problem, intimidate me in some way as though I'm not a good parent. Because that, I feel like a lot of times it could just be me, but a lot of times people can say things to you when you're in these meetings to either intimidate you like you're supposed to back down or you're supposed to feel less than or you need to be doing more at home. But for me, that's not what I took away from it. I took away from it was, one, you haven't sent me any reports. Two, I find it interesting that you brought it up because I'm talking to you about what you wrote. And it took a lot for me, Kim, to either bring it up. I spent all summer. So listen, guys, I got this progress report in June. And I spent all summer looking at it, reading it. Am I tripping? Am I seeing what I'm seeing? This is really personal. Like, you know, really doing that all summer long. And I called a meeting, not actually to speak to her. I called a meeting to ask about if it was a good fit for my son. But she seemed to be in a meeting. And I took it aside from the universe and God that he wanted me to say something. I think that my thing about we told parents is that when you're about to go into a school meeting, they make you feel like you were on the defense when the reality is that they are. The onus is on them to provide services and to have kids thrive. And so ultimately, they are the ones that they need to figure out what do they need to do to meet this IEP and to meet these federal mandates. A lot of times when we're writing something and saying that a kid is non-compliant, like I said, it's basically saying I've tried everything possible. This is the treatment plan that we've determined to be the most appropriate and they're not following through with that. What I would counter with is, okay, well, it seems like these particular either interventions aren't necessarily helpful. He isn't engaging in them. You can't force a child to engage in something that they don't want to do and that doesn't align with them. How can we get creative and meet him where he is? The other thing could be, okay, well, is this goal, since he isn't motivated by that or he seems to pass it, is this goal appropriate? Has he actually mastered that? What is your perception of mastery? Because I think that he functions in this way, in these different settings, and he does this, 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 and here. And these are all seem to be, you know, behaviors that tied to this particular goal. So it seems like he may have mastered that. And it's really hard to master emotional control or self-regulation. It's very difficult to put a percentage on that. It's very subjective. So are we looking at it as it's in a subjective way or are we looking at it in an objective way? Because the reality is that he may be different with different people. So then I think that's more a personal interpersonal issue. And is that really measurable? Ooh. That's what I would say. Okay, Kim. <laughs> that's those are the things that I would say. 
ultimately, I mean, you look at it this way. A math teacher will say, okay, well, they don't respond well to this approach. Let me change my approach. It's the same thing for a social worker. It's the same thing for a therapist, right? And if they're not a good fit, then you go somewhere else, right? The hard thing is that when they're at school and they're there, Right. This is what we've got. As well as parents understanding that if it's not a good fit, you have a voice to say it's not working out. You know, they have other people on staff. Yes, this is the person that they choose to give your child. And just like when you take your child to the doctor that you choose, you have the same power to say, I don't think it's a good fit. They're not actually gelling together. Is it possible that he receives services from someone else? And I will also say, I'll speak to the other thing that's kind of unspoken. It's painful when somebody looks like you, but they don't ride for you. And it's confusing. It's very confusing. And sometimes yeah. you kind of put the expectations out there that, oh, my God, well, they get me. And no, <laughs> like no, some people are duds. Some people don't. I get a lot of kids in my practice that the parents are like, oh, my gosh, we've tried so hard to find a black therapist. And so and I'm like. The reality is you can try me out and I may not be for you either. You know, mm-hmm. and that, that's just one part of the puzzle. I mean, you could have a great therapist and they don't look like you at all and they just get you. I mean, it's just one factor, but it does sting more. It's really, you know, because you're like, oh, this person could kind of like actually get me. And it's like, womp, womp. like <laughs> it doesn't. And I learned that before her, before the social worker, I learned that with my son's speech therapist. And I had to build a rapport, but I actually had to go out to understand the pieces that she was missing. Because when you're dealing with um, public school, you know, and people are being contracted, what I'm learning is that there's limitations to what they actually want to provide. And sometimes you have to make sure you understand what they should be providing and ask for it. Right. And then once you ask for it, they give it. And I'm also going to say this. I find in my experiences If you are not black, if you are white, they have a tendency more to give them everything possible under the sun. But when they deal with black parents and black kids, it's more of a limiting basis because you don't know. You don't know. What you know is someone said they're going to help your child. You don't know exactly what it looks like. You don't know what it is. You don't know what the service is. You were sitting at the table with people and they're introducing themselves and they're so nice. They're so nice. I definitely what you do. You say you're a social worker. Then I'm confused with why are you working with my son with his feelings? Because you said you're a social worker. You didn't say you was a therapist. And I'm not talking about you, Kim, but these, these are the thoughts that go yeah. around in my head when I first sat down in a meeting. You're a speech therapist. Okay, I know people can't understand when he talks. Right. Not you also address reading. You address phonics. Like all those little things, I'm not aware of at that time, you know. So sometimes you, you're going to have to do, and that's why I created the parent cipher. It was like, yeah. you know, take a listen so you can see what is a person supposed to be providing. So at least you have an idea and like, didn't know what kind of questions to ask. Yeah. So I agree with you. Like I've had three of my peoples and to be honest, only one gentleman, Darius Thomas, speech therapist, was my ride or die because when I wanted private placement and the lady said that she felt like he was not a good fit before I could even raise my voice, he raised his. And asked her, well, what would be a good fit? And I was like, okay, Darius, I see you. All right. On the team. On my team, Xavier. <laughs> That's, I mean, it's, I want to say this in the right way. People who go into this and treating kids, I don't think anybody necessarily has it out for kids or doesn't want to, right? You know, it's just that there's a very, oh my goodness. 
I'll put it like this. My practice, I talk very clearly about that I help kids dealing with racial trauma. I could sit here and see there's some other Black child therapists around that would not feel comfortable with that and talking directly about that. But I also look at it as my experience when working in schools as a school social worker, working inpatient child psychiatry, working in residentials and working community based that you cannot not (laughs) say that this is racism. Right. But I also have had the privilege of going to school with plenty of white people and knowing how to talk the talk, walk the walk, know exactly what they do and being unassuming enough that they feel very comfortable saying some of the most racist garbage ever and knowing how they think, you know, and knowing that not everybody thinks that way, but understanding that there are systems that are in place that are very biased. And there are people that we still are taught in school who believe in eugenics and who are very racist and very, you know, anti-Semitic and, you know, they're just a host of just gross things that are the foundation for a lot of the treatment and that we have to kind of overcome that. And we have to really have these uncomfortable conversations and checking our biases. Just because somebody is brown or black does not mean that they haven't bought into some of this stuff. There are some people who literally aren't just don't feel like doing it or they just don't feel like dealing with a kid that doesn't want to talk to them. Every field, there's an indoctrination period. You know, there's an indoctrination period depending on where you were coming from or your mindset before you started. But one of the main things I came up with in the last couple of years talking to my kids was I got socialized at some point and I didn't know it. And I was like, wait, my answers to their questions, especially when it came to microaggressions, Mm -hmm. racism, Mm -hmm. answers that the responses that I was providing to them were so socialized and they would bring it up because they would be like, well, mom, that doesn't make sense because this is what's happening. And I'm like, oh, child, when you get socialized, I don't even know. And I had to really start checking myself Because one of the things I love about neurodivergent children is that they are very literal. And because they're so literal and we tend to not live in that white, black space, we tend to live in that gray. People can infer it may sound like, but they're very literal. So when I would say things, they would say, what are you talking about? This is what happened. Just going to say Trump. My son was like, he is a kidnapper. And I was like, well, no, this is what happened. Their parents, you know, I'm giving him the whole spiel. And he looked at me, he said, mom, they took the kids from their parents. That's kidnapping. Right. And I sat there like, oh, okay, he's right. Like, ooh, ooh, I'm socialized. And I said, okay, you're right. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. There's a couple of studies. I can't remember the one off the top of my head, but it was basically that kids are fine up until like maybe three or five or so. They play perfectly fine. Braces and all that, right? But around four or five white kids start to separate themselves. They go off and they do their own little thing. Kids of color don't have an issue with playing with different ones, right? Mm -hmm. And we start to notice, and that's an interesting thing. So they see differences, right? So the whole thing about treating things as being colorblind is completely unrealistic and not talking about race and not talking about differences is completely unrealistic because obviously children notice differences. And they also have internalized that being white is better because the white people are off here and they're not allowed there. So instead of us kind of explaining it away because we kind of said, okay, but this is just the way that things are. We're not going to rock the boat. We're not going to make things worse because I don't want my kids to be a target. We're yeah. going to have to get them to kind of toe the line. If you toe the line, you're not going to be a problem. You're going to be safe. We know this is not true. 
<laughs> we know that we have no control over that, but that's what we need to do as parents to make sure that our kids feel okay. The other thing is that we're admitted into a lot of other places and we're creating our own spaces that this generation is now being like, I don't want to just be happy to be here. I want to live. I don't want to yep. be, be here by your grace. I'm going to make my own table. Like, or I'm be like, get all that seat. You don't need to be there, right? I'm going to be here. Make the table bigger, right? So it starts with us having like some kind of uncomfortable conversations. I think I had a parent who's like, oh, I just tell my kids that their white people are just a lighter shade of brown. They're kind of like peach. I'm like, no, like, can we just be like people are different? Right. <laughs> and if a kid mentions that somebody's different, be like, yeah, isn't that great? Like if you point out that somebody is from a different country or they have like a different, you know, they may have, you know, a disability or whatever, that talking about that does not make a kid ableist. <laughs> talking about that does not make a kid racist. It talks about differences because that's the reality and that's the human experience. When we lean towards white supremacy is when we're saying that anybody who does have a disability, anybody who doesn't look like the norm is not okay. And therefore, we're not going to talk about things that aren't okay. We're only going to focus on the things that are right. That's the issue. And this is when we have kids who are saying, oh, my God, I don't have a problem with people being different, but I don't want to be different. Why do they know that? As opposed to kids are different. And it starts with adults being okay with differences. And it starts with adults not labeling a particular behavior or a particular experience because of a difference. Instead of saying, oh, you are successful in spite of, yeah, you're successful. Right? Yes. This is the way that you're successful. I think I told, I told a kid today, I said, listen, all this stuff, like, well, you know, he's like, oh, I just took some medication for ADHD and it's not, you know, I just took it. It's not helpful. And I said, well, the session today, you know, difficulty focusing had nothing to do with attention. It had to, something to do with emotion and discomfort. So there's a difference, right? You feeling uncomfortable doing these particular things had nothing to do <laughs> with attention, but you'll figure it out when you have to do something that you have to focus on. But guess what? Focus doesn't come from a pill. Focus comes from practice. The pills are there to help you and it's help you so that you can function in a neurotypical world because that's what they're expecting of you, but that you'll figure out and unlock in your brain what tricks you need to do so that you can be over here with them for a little bit so you can go back to your space. That's what it's there for. I love it. I love it. That's one of my fears with medication for my kids is I don't have the therapeutic support in place right. for them to put in place the things that they need to understand how to make themselves successful. And, you know, every parent is different, right. but there has to be a balance because yes. if the medicine is taken out, then they don't have any skills in place to say, this is how I operate. This is what I need to do. This, this is how I feel. This is what I need to do. Yes. I'm anxious. This is what I need to do to not be anxious. Yes. So with that being said, Miss Kim, how can people find you and reach out to you? So if you're in the Philadelphia area, or actually if you're in Pennsylvania and you're open for a virtual therapy, my practice is ameltherapy.com. I have expanded and have hired on three other amazing clinicians who work with kids and teens. So you can, you know, schedule a session with either me or my other three therapists. And we do virtual. So we are doing virtual groups right now. I'm running a group for transracial adoptees that's in person, but I also will be running one virtually if there is interest. I also have a child anxiety group, Worry Warriors, that's going to be running for kids age 7 to 10. I also have a teen group that one of my clinicians is running that's specifically for girls of color who are ages 14 to 17. That's coming up. 
And I also provide parent coaching on my other website. But there's a link for my therapy site for that. So I offer, you know, packages for parent coaching. And I'm also going to be running a six-week parenting group towards the end of the fall for any parents who are interested in conscious parenting. Ooh, okay. Look at that. After this, y'all, y'all know I'm going to have to talk to Kim. But... So, of course, it's the parent cipher. And I always ask everyone, what's your favorite song that gets you hype? And Kim said, Lucini by Camp Flow. So, why is that your favorite song? Why is that? I don't know. I have this strong belief that I'm like Pharrell. I see colors when I, like, listen to music. But I see these amazing colors and it hits me in my soul. Don't know why, but, like, every time I hear the hook, it hits me right here. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why. Now, do I understand anything they're saying in the rest of their album? No, I don't. But that song is fire. It's pretty songs. I, I mess up all types of words. I make up my own words. But if the hook, the beat, it'll get you. Sometimes it'll get you. And you like, when you look, when you get older and you hear the lyrics, you're like, ooh. Ooh. <laughs> but it's so good, though. We're still, like, whenever I hear Bonita Applebaum, I only remember the hook. And I was like, this song is so good. So I was telling my son, my 13-year-old son, I was like, yeah. Then it played and it was like, I'll be Anita Applebaum. I got to put you on. And then he was like 36, 37. I was like, oh, wait, no. No, no, no. This is not for kids. It's not for kids. I mean, the other song I really like is Electric Relaxation. Yeah. yeah. I had a guest last season. She was like, girl, that electric relaxation. Yeah. I was trying to keep it. Semi-PG, but yeah, that one. But thank you so much for being a guest on The Cypher and giving us these tips about this pandemic, girl. Absolutely. Absolutely. I would say to everybody, just, you know, kind of trust yourself, trust the process, and y'all know a lot more than you think you do. You're definitely the expert of your child and especially expert of their humanity. So go into your meetings, keep that foremost in your mind, and, you know, you'll be okay. Thank you so much for listening. If this content is delivering value to you, please subscribe and go to wherever you listen to your podcast and give us a five-star review. That helps us build this community. And that's what we're all about, building this community as big as we can to deliver as much value as we can. The Parenting Cypher Podcast is produced by the Podcast Laundry Production Company and the executive producer, myself, Jeannie Dawkins. Until next time, remember to be patient with yourself and your child.